Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is AI Inside, Episode 2, recorded Tuesday, January 30th for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. Shipstead's AI Strategy with Sven Sturmer-Thaulow. This episode of AI Inside is made possible by our wonderful patrons at patreon.com slash AI Inside Show. If you like what you hear, head on over and support us directly. And thank you for making this podcast possible. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of AI Inside, our new podcast on all things artificial intelligence uh, in in this world. Over time, we will talk about everything. We will leave no stone unturned. I think it's going to take us a while to get there. Um, who is us? It's me, Jason Howell, joined, as always, by my friend Jeff Jarvis. Good to see you, Jeff. Hey, boss. How are you? Good to see you. I'm I'm doing well. It's great to see you, too. Um, I'm really happy. Like, you know, episode one, Went off without a hitch. We've received a ton of really great feedback. Yep. Yep. Um, thank you all out there. Yeah. Thank you to it's everyone gratifying. who who is really helping us um, kind of kick this show off. Just real quick, related to that, if you like this show, you know we are in the early stages of the show, so spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can review your podcast. It really does help a lot, especially in the beginning as we're kind of building the momentum. And uh, and also you can support us directly if you want to. Instead of just subscribing to the feed, go to patreon.com slash AI Inside Show. We have some extra perks for people who want to contribute directly to us and the production of the show. And we've got some really great ideas for that. So check that out. That's the housekeeping. We got it out of the way. It didn't take very long. Why don't we get to our amazing guest this week? Sven Sturmer Thaulow is the EVP of, and Chief of uh, Data and Technology um, Officer at Shipstead. And uh, Sven is here with us to talk all about kind of creating an LLM for media in Norway. Sven, it's really nice to meet you and nice to have you on the show today. Thank you. Really great to be here. Looking forward to this hour. Yeah, yeah, we've got some really great stuff to talk about. I mean, last week we had Rick uh, Scrinta on from the Common um, why Common Crawl like Foundation, 
That's right. Common Crawl Foundation. And we talked, you know, it, it kind of tied into Jeff's visit. Jeff goes to DC um, a couple of weeks ago, and you were kind of part of part of that soupy mix as well. And Jeff, I got to say, you, you made a, a very strong case for Sven because Sven and his team are doing some really cool work uh, with Shipstead. Tell, tell us a little bit about your, Jeff, your interest in kind of this story. You know, let me give you a little media background here. The, yeah. the Shipstead is, and I, I do not exaggerate, the most admired news company and uh, cause of the most jealousy in the news industry in the world because they've been successful and they've figured out the internet better than any other company I know of online. And uh, they've done that uh, in various ways. They have successful subscriptions in Norway, very high penetration, a very high subscription rate versus other countries. Um, they have very good news products. They've built other news companies. So I watch Shipstead regularly. A lot of news people do, and they wanted to go visit Shipstead all the time. Finally, Shipstead, enough with you, all you visiting fire people. That's it. When I was in San Francisco for the World Economic Forum uh, AI Governance Summit, I was standing there at a cocktail party where I knew no one talking to a very nice Norwegian executive and we're talking about LLMs and he said, oh, you know, so we're uh, Norway being Norway, all of our stuff is digitized and we're building an LLM in the Norwegian language and Shipstead is leading the way to get other publishers to join in. I said, aren't, aren't they all complaining like they are in America? They said, no. So I looked it up and I saw Sven's address to the uh, uh, Nordic media conference doing just that encouraging publishers to join in and lease the research phase on building a Norwegian language LLM. And it shows such a different attitude to what we see in the U.S., where publishers are trying to clamp down and expand um, copyright and shrink fair use, and they're getting all hostile with, with each other. And it's just different in Norway. So I, I, I wrote a post about this, and I ended it with saying, why can't we just be like Norway? And when Jason saw, Jason, when you saw that, you said, can we get Sven on? So yeah. Sven is here, thank goodness. We can, we can talk about the LLM and Shipstead's AI strategy and more. Uh, if I got any of that Great. right or wrong, uh, Sven, by all means, say so. No, I think it was pretty, pretty accurate. Absolutely. Let's, so let's dig into it. Yeah, let's dig into it. So for, first of all, I guess your, when, when did you join the company? This was what, five years ago? And, and when you joined, was this a glimmer in your eye at that stage or kind of how did, how did this all kind of take place? And if we look at the kind of the, the, uh, the timeline of the last five years, um, five or so years since you've, uh, been there, like how did this all progress? How did it begin? So, I mean, Shipstead has been working with AI in its um, more larger sense for about 10 years, right? So, okay. um, but that's not been on the Gen AI naturally. But since we live up the written word, I mean, language models and the related technologies of that has always been a focus for us. Um, I think about, I joined about the 219 and very soon in around 2021, we started on a, a strategy project that we call Horizon, which was for the... Future Institute with Amy Webb and that team, uh, trying mm -hmm. to look a bit further into the horizons of the major trends and using their proprietary way of doing foresight work, uh, which was very helpful for us, actually. And we looked into not only technologies, but, you know, more on generic level of trends that can be macroeconomic trends, politics, it can be technology and so on and so on. And one of the, all of the technology trends that were not like pointing directly to AI, which we've been working with for a long time, particularly in the more the recommendation system space, right? Um, pointed to consumer uh, attitude and things that 
we thought were important for our company were the underlying enabling technology was AI. So we decided to double down and create, you know, our own central team that was into AI and future technologies, which we didn't really have at that time. We actually had shut it down because we didn't really succeed. It was, you know, hard to get these experts to really interlock with our business. But now we restarted it. Um, and that was 2021, 2022. And then we started to fumble around, you know, with with language models, and we went into research collaborations and so on with universities, which traditionally ships it as a media company, even though Jeff says, you know, you really are in the forefront among the media companies. We've really never really had a relationship with universities. And we went specifically then very, very targeted into AI research centers that were funded by the Norwegian state. So that was kind of the beginning of it, I guess, uh, when we started. And then where, um, so, 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 the reason I called you was because of the the effort to build the Norwegian uh, and Northern Germanic language uh, LLMs. Uh, mm. If you could if you could explain as you did to me before uh, that process of the research to the phase to the commercial phase and how what you said to a fellow publishers and how they've reacted. Yeah, so so um, we went. There's there were two research labs, and one of them were in Trondheim, where our, our largest technical university, where the head of the research uh, lab is called Jonat Legula. He's a, a professor in computer science and AI, but also, he's always into linguistics, which is quite normal within the generative AI space. And I asked him when we started, you know, it was like an eight-year run to start an AI, a, a lab like that. And I asked him because I was the chair of the, the, the new, the new, this new lab. And I asked him as the head of the lab, I said, you know, what, what kind of dent in the small can we do in this large universe within that time? And he said, well, we need to make an Norwegian language model. And I said, well, at least let's do that. I mean, we do a lot of other things because Norway is really into energy and windmills and, you know, petroleum and stuff like that as well in that AI, AI lab. But so we really in, went into getting that done. And of course, that was before OpenAI and ChatGPT and so on. And after a while, we understood, you know, that, you know, the data is really key for us and the language data is really key. And you start really figuring out how do we get hold of that data and how do we get the rights to use that data. And then one of the key players in a small country like we are, it's a small language, no, it's not English, is to get hold of the the Norwegian data that has high quality. Um, and one of the sources are the media companies. So uh, what we wanted to do was then first to get the media companies to to give us the rights to use the data for research purposes, to actually prove that our hypothesis was that, you know, that these models can perform better in our native language than the big frontier models. Um, and uh, that's what we did. And that's what you watched there, Jeff, in, in Bergen. I think that was last year. Mm -hmm. uh, when we tried to really argue towards the other media companies, you know, that uh, this is important for our culture. Uh, it's important for, because language is an important part of any, any culture, and particularly in small countries, it's super important. Um, secondly, it's super important to align these models according to our values. And our values are different than other countries' values, at least the region and the Nordics. You know, Jeff, you mentioned before we, we started this thing that you knew the editor of Oftenposten back in the days, and he was the guy that actually really confronted Facebook when they deleted the beat, the, the image of the napalm girl. Exactly. Do you recall that? Yes, Espinel uh, 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 put it up 
Um, it would have been taken down from an artist and then he put it up too, kind of daring Facebook and Facebook took it down and he couldn't get anybody at Facebook to say, this is journalism. This is not mm -hmm. pornography. And yeah, he was right. a leader in the world in, in trying to change the relationship of news and Facebook. So in that, in that respect, you can see the language models as the same thing, right? That's like who decides what kind of values the language model has, and and when you think about language models as infrastructure for, for example, educational tooling in textbooks, how important isn't isn't it really to align those models according to the values of the country? Uh, so that was another argument, and the, and the third one, which is a bit more, I mean, on the long term side, we don't really know, but how important infrastructure are the LLMs going to be for countries? So let's say that the country uses an LLM from something that is not an, an ally, and it's instrumental into all services in society, even in, this, in the services of the state. Is it okay that all these things are run just you know, like cloud somewhere? Or are there particular use cases where you would like to have some more control over that infrastructure? And I'm not talking about the frontier, massive frontier models. I'm talking about more foundational models that are used for your own language and for, for certain purposes. And then, uh, of course, in general strokes, I think we all also said that, you know, this is a part of our responsibility as comp media companies in a small country like ours. I mean, we, we live of the written word. We generate a lot of, uh, of content. And it's really amongst our responsibilities to make sure that, you know, the, the language that we have thrives in a new digital space, which the generative AI space actually is. Mm -hmm. It's a big of a long story, but that's uh, at least how we approached it that time. So I've got ton tons of questions, but um, yeah. uh, uh, you also explained to me when we talked before my testimony that uh, you're in the process of making a deal for the purposes of research. That's going to be separate from a commercial use and probably then revisiting the publishers and revisiting the business model at that time. One of the discussions that we're having in the U.S. is about the use of um, content for the purposes of training a model versus for the purposes of output. And mm. a lot of us see training as fair use because it is transformative because it, it, it it's just it's just the right to read and learn and be taught and no i don't think the machine is anthropomorphic i'm just using that in a general way the company that runs the machine has a right or the institution that runs the machine hmm. and so so that's what that's different from the machine being asked to quote something and quoting it if it does not have the proper rights so do you see that separation between training and output? There's various words that are being used around that. Um, and is the, in the interpretation of your fellow publishers, is the use of their content for this research, in essence, use for training? And the commercial end, the output end, will come later? The, 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 the two-step model we've been thinking about is that first we, we – we release the content, which we think is really our property, right? Um, for trying to build this LLM and see how it performs in our language for research purposes. If we then prove that this copyrighted content is important for making good quality LLMs in Norwegian or in the Nordics for that sake, then we need to figure out the commercial terms. So I think that that's kind of a two-step model instead of just going straight to the really difficult part, which is the commercial part. But then I'd like to make a couple of notes on that. So first of all, 
we, we believe, for, of course, that the content that we create is our property and it shouldn't be taken by anyone without asking us. However, we don't really think, I'm not really concerned about being paid for that historic data in large amounts. We don't think that's a business model in itself. What we are more concerned about is really having access to the results of the training at fair, fair terms and particularly when we are contributing to data. So let's say what what we would be angry about is like, let's say we were scraped, all our content was taken, probably quite a bit of it is, it's taken by the big frontier models. They come back to us and they ask us to pay shitloads of dollars <laughs> to use <laughs> that language model. That is just not fair, right? So there needs to be some kind of a trade where we contribute to something and we get something back. Uh, and then we are also really into open source, right? I mean, we're small com- tech companies like we are in, in, the, in the larger sense of the world. We, we would like a very, very thriving open source community. So we are more leaning towards, you know, open sourcing things to get things back to us instead of buying this on a proprietary basis. Then I would say that, you know, after we talk, Jeff, there's a lot happening in the Norwegian government, which is quite interesting. So the Ministry of Culture gave a task to the National Library, which has digitized about 90% of all Norwegian content. That's quite impressive, right? Just very impressive. Very, yes, very so Norway. It's, yeah, it's, it's, so it's like the whole corpus of everything, right? Um, and they will then, together with the research institution that I'm the chair of, and together with the University of Oslo, we will now train models with all also of the publishers, so the books of Norway that are copyrighted, to really see if those models perform way better when we add long text to the LLMs. And if that is the case, then we need to discuss with the state, the publishers, the media companies, you know, whether which those rights should be bought out, for example. So that's kind of the the sentiment in the Norwegian society and, and our, I would say our government is, is quite forward-leaning in this now. Hmm. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The question that comes to mind for me is about, you know, convincing fellow publishers into this like the challenge is there like i you know obviously i have a very u.s centric view and what we're dealing with right now are publications like the new york times you know flipping a lid over over this and saying no absolutely this is this is not okay and cutting off the siphon because they want to protect their work and it is their work so i can understand you know their their desire to do that but um how how do you go about 
convincing publishers uh, into this? You know, did, did you run into any interference or any kind of hesitation around this the way I feel like we've seen in so many other examples has happened? Well, there is hesitation about commercial models. I don't think every anyone has really figured out, you know, how's the compensation to the yeah. to the right writers of the content, right? And and um, so so that's still kind of a bit unsolved. But I think that the mentality is that you know none of our companies, the media companies and the Nordics, are large enough, and we're the largest one uh, to do this by ourselves. Hmm. Um, so we need to do it together. And secondly, we can just benefit from doing it together because we need these foundational models to to make better products for our users or, or have better productivity in our companies. So, so unless we get these models, these trained models, and we can then specifically train them with our, I would say, very important you know, data that we don't share with anyone, um, for specific purposes in our companies, then we are going to, you know, fall behind in this development. And this, I, I think that this is a, one of the, those big moments in the media industry going forward. That unless we really endorse this and try to think about how we get our jobs done towards our customers in a way, in a different way with this technology, then we are going. This is, might be the last battle of the media industry towards the big uh, big tech giants. So what would your advice be to American media companies, given what you've watched happening here, so different from what's happening in, under your leadership in Norway? I think they should think about collaboration, uh, making language models, foundational language models that are not the frontier models, right? But language models in English that they probably can do together, which can be a basis for their product development without having paying paying mm -hmm. a lot to, to other companies. I think they shouldn't be too... Um, optimistic about how much that content is worth. I mean, New York Times is a special case, right? For for making language models. I mean, what is the willingness to pay for, for a delta in a corpus that's just enormous? It's uh, It must have extreme high value. And then being willing to, to go into reasonable trades if you want to do that with commercial players in addition. Yeah, you told me that that you've experimented already with putting. Well, a, you told me that that the model is that you've built is performing better than so. So so far, you're proving the hypothesis. Tell me more about that. But also that at Shipstead, you did an experiment of doing what I want to see American publishers do, which is to find new uses for generative AI. And one that you talked about was putting um, your LLM in front of Shipstead content so that readers could enter into a different user interface and relationship with that content. Can you tell us about that? Love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, now I can tell you a bit about what we're doing, right? So we're, we're also training our own model. That's not actually based on the one that... It's not based now on the one that we're building in, in Trondheim, but it's based on one of the national library's early models where we then are, are pre-training that, continuing to pre-train it. And we tested it for well, the simple use case a lot of media companies do, right? So I want to generate a title out of this article that the journalist wrote so the desk can get different proposals on articles. And we tested it, you know, with the OpenAI version and a couple of other models and this specific model. And the specific model that we, we talked about right here just outperformed by far all the other models. So it's a very it's a smaller foundational model, mm -hmm. uh, but that is specific on Norwegian language that is performing way better. So now we have, you know, articles that where where the title is generated by an AI. There's a human behind 
that is actually approving it, right? But but still, the desk gets you know four different proposals in their content management tool. You say these are the four proposals we have, and they just click on this one and they push it out there. So that's that's uh, one of the cases that we've done. Um, then the second question you asked me was about that agent, wasn't it, Jeff? Um, regarding you know tech reviews and stuff like that. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think what we really want to do is to to really experiment with how can users and we have a very strong destination company both in our marketplaces business and our media business so people come to our sites they don't go through facebook or google to find our news or find our items on a classified site but we would like to you know experiment how can how can users in this conversational interface interact with us in a different way so what we did was to say okay let's just try it out just make an ad agent on top of like you know a tech crunch kind of newspaper with lots of reviews on different consumer electronics and stuff like that and just make a, a bot where you can say you know hey um i got this small living room um it's like four meters from the from the sofa to the tv it's a bit bright i don't have more than one thousand two hundred dollars but i'd like to buy a tv so could you recommend me one and then it kind of pops back you know with yeah Based on our tests and what you wrote right now, we would recommend you to buy this in this TV. It, you know, it it we just shipped it out there, um, and it they, it was it was uh, <laughs> it was hacked by some of our own people, you know, within a couple of hours, and they just tested it back and forth and ran it for two three hours, and then they took it down, and then they learned shitloads, and they're probably going to launch stuff again. So that's just the way we try to operate, just to try to experiment and figure out how can we do this in the best possible way. Yeah, it seems to yeah no I was just going to say it seems to me that the um as I'm hearing you talk about kind of the benefits for a publication um or a media company of creating an LLM around their own content I could see like like take New York Times like I could see New York Times being uh open to something like that but you know, in a very controlled environment, in a very controlled situation, taking all their content and saying, this is our value add. This is how we allow people who are fans of our content, who, you know, are dedicated to the New York Times um, to lean into their trust of what we've created and feel like we have some sort of control and can add value with that in, in new and different directions. But I guess that goes counter to this idea of all the different publications kind of working together with one giant pile of, of you know, collaborative. But isn't that data, kind of which, the input and output, Jason, where, where the, the, the training of the model, everyone shares in the benefit. But if yeah, you want to serve to your readers your content, then you have the rights to do that as a separate operation. Is that yeah. kind of where you're headed? Uh, yeah, yeah, I th- but yeah, but I think, I think, I think, I mean, I mean, is it all content or is it some content, right? So, I mean, for a news company, there are there's just lots of content that just breaking news just has a value for hours, right? And then it's off; it doesn't yes. have any more value. True. So, so you can take historical, uh, typical historical data that doesn't really have a value and get really good output of make using that data for making a foundational model, which is the basis for what you build those specialized LLMs for your purpose, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, let's take, I, I'm not New York Times, but I mean, they have lots of food recipes, right? Mm-hmm. That's data that actually is value for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So it's Absolutely. not given that they want to give that away, right? That, that, that That's fair. 
I mean, mm-hmm. so but but if they they be a bit more nuanced, I think that probably you know they would take base models like we do now with Mistral is a French company that's building you know a base model that they open sourced, and then we train on top of that to get that model to become better with Norwegian language, particularly also from Shipstead. So that's the approach that probably New York Times should look into because they need those kind of language models, that's for sure. They can't base themselves on open AI or any of those. It's just too too costly. I'd love to, to, to brainstorm a few possible uses that journalism should be making. You've already gone through a couple. Um, oh, I have tons. That's what I, I have tons. Let me, let, me mention, <laughs> let me mention two and hear what you think of those, and then I'd love to hear, hear yours. One is uh, whether the news industry should, besides building an LLM, build an API to their news so that models that are out of date as they are, um, when they need to call on current content, you have a key, you have a business deal, and, 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 and you, you, you make it more of a service to the AI industry rather than being hostile to that industry. Let's create a service for them. That's one. Uh, and, and, and Amy Reinhardt, uh, who is at the Associated Press, is working on building that API for the industry. Uh, she's doing that in the executive program I, I taught in. But I also think there's other interfaces between AI companies and, and news. Uh, I'll, I'll throw that one out mm. first. What do you think of that? I think it's quite an interesting idea because it's kind of an open and innovation idea where you say, okay, um, let's be honest, folks. Uh, since the internet came, what we did was to connect you know, the, the paper newspaper to electricity. Right. That's more or less what we've done, right? right. It's just right. the art, the artifact, the article is still there. There's, there's like barely companies that have done, you know, recommendation systems that are, you know, 10% of what they can do in Netflix. I mean, that's the kind of the innovation done. Let's be a bit, bit, bit blunt about this. So, so to, to, to kind of challenge ourselves and say, okay, we can't do all this innovation ourselves. Let's do an open innovation mode. I, I, I like that idea. I think it's uh, quite interesting. But you have to have some kind of a payment thing, right? Yes. And it need and it needs to be some. You need to be a bit, you know, careful in the way that you don't want to be pressured down in the value chain uh, too much, right? Because that's that's kind of the that's the really 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 holy grail of the news business is to have the end user there. But yes, yes. might not get innovation if you're just stuck with that all the time. So the other idea that, that I've had um, is, is, is for the newsroom use. I talked to an editor of a, of a not-for-profit newsroom in a large state in the U.S. and said, imagine if you had your readers go out and record um, 100 school board meetings. And you come back and the machine can now very easily uh, transcribe that. And then you could query that data. You could say how many school boards are looking at what's going on in America right now at banning books. Um, or mm. worrying about about restrooms, or I saw today that one one school took all the mirrors out of the school because kids were using the mirrors to make TikToks. You know, so what are they talking about at the school boards? Um, uh, you you could do something that no single journalist or no single newsroom could have done before, but now could do in collaboration with the public as gatherers of data. Um, what does that sound? Yeah. Like? I think it's just super interesting. It's like it's citizen journalism in a way. I think we've tried it out some in different companies in Norway before. I think the big, you know, really big game changer is the ability to crunch all of that data to yes. find those anomalies, right? That's the, the investigative uh, journalism. I mean, the, the really, the really, the really, really good journalism 
where people are using, you know, whole, our journalists are using a whole year to gather data from different municipalities or from courts mm-hmm. or whatever it is to figure out what's going on. Then they then they get that data, and then they have to spend loads of time and data scientists to figure out those anomalies to say, that, you know, in this municipality and this municipality, they're doing this, this, and that, and that's the story. And now you probably can just parse those documents or spreadsheets or videos or whatever it is to try to find those things with those tools. So I'm really looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, that one of the jobs to be done that we have is to, you know, to keep the keep the ones with power accountable for what they do. Yes, that's going to be way harder with these tools in the in the in the hands of the journalists. So I think you know those people abusing their power, be aware. And we just, you know, we, we had a minister that had to leave her office last week. And the reason for that was that one guy figured out that, and she was, you know, the minister of education, by the way. And he said, that, you know, that then taking a student to court, to the to Supreme Court for, for, um, for copying some stuff in their master's degree, right? So, you know, it's super strict with the student. And, you know, they lost and they took her to the Supreme Court. And this guy said, well, let me look at the master's degree of these ministers. <laughs> so he took the master's thing and he put it into this uh, AI tool, which they use in schools, right? To find out whether they copied stuff. And she was busted. She left one hour afterwards. It's one on Twitter. This is fake. She copied stuff. The master is uh, what you call plagiary, right? Right. And she's out. So what are some of the other uses that you dream of for using this at Shipstead, the, the general technology of AI? You know, I'm not going to use the, all the time for just talk about all the usual things we do. You know, that's, you know, uh, transcript-based transcribation and stuff. But what I think we really need to do is to, to think about, you know, how can we move away from just putting electricity on an article? So I'm not talking about recommendations and that stuff, right? But how can we really serve people in the job to be done that we are there to, so, to solve for them in a different way with AI. So let's just take one idea that we're refunding. Which is that, are we just talking about that, you know, are we going to make this, I would say, you know, inf- infinite article, uh, just a live thing that goes around the story, almost like it is in TV, right? That's continuously just describing the domain. It's not like this is an updated article. You know, this, that's the way we do it right now. And and you can zoom out of the article in a, from a domain perspective and just look at this in a bigger view. You can zoom in and you can understand more in details on one of the sections. Practically, you can just, you can just see that this becomes like a like cognitive map of a, ho- of a whole domain. Mm-hmm. Right? Can you do that? I mean, that's, that's fully possible to do. But you need to really use these tools to be able to do it. And by that, you can practically reach the, you know, the holy grail of, of uh, getting the job to be done. That I mean, you, Jeff, and you, Jason, you have different opinions on what is good for you, right? Mm-hmm. We know that since internet came along. But has the news industry done anything about it? No. We don't have enough journalists, so we can't produce the content. And we're crap at using technology for recommendations. And we're also a bit careful because we don't want to make echo chambers, right? So it's a... So in this space, I think that's really where we need to skate. That's where the puck is going. And, and we just need to endorse this and, and try it out. I, lo- I love that. Jason? Yeah, I love that too. What does that look like in, in, like I, like I'm in practical terms when I'm thinking about, you know, and, and maybe this is, I guess, the, the big challenge is, okay, we know that we 
that this would be an amazing use of this information to broaden out what we know about journalism and how we, you know, stay up to date on a, you know, a, a topic or a current news item that's, you know, kind of building, you know, the, the previous paradigm was to tack on new information as we have it. Now this is like a living, breathing document, but like, what is the interface or the kind of approach through which a user might you know, might interact with that. Are they chatting with the LLM about this particular thing? Or is that LLM creating that living kind of environment around that story? I'm just kind of curious if you have ideas around that. I think the LLM can, and the generative AI can synthesize, you know, truly produce content by journalism in this kind of a live stream and a live media of something, right? I think mm -hmm. that that can be fully possible to do. Um, I think in my mind, it's almost like I use mind maps, right? I love mind maps. You guys use mind maps, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, right. So you maps. and you can you can you can view them in like a three D way, right? You have this kind of two D thing, as you can click into something, and then woof, you go into some a deeper deeper understanding of it. If whether that's you know conveyed in text or in images or video or audio for that sake, I I think that just develop. I mean, that's multimedia in a way. Um, yeah, but I, I, I don't I don't have this view of you know that's how the interface is going to look. I'm not the UXer, so I guess yeah, yeah. No, some others will do that. Yeah. I, I like that, that. that a lot, Sven. In terms of looking, at, I was part of a startup years ago called Daylife. May it rest in peace. It's gone. But we we speculated about about uh, how to present news in different ways, and one was to get our heads around the article versus the story. And the story is something that goes on and on and on and on and on. And an article is just mm. a snapshot in there, right? Which we, our production me mechanisms made us do. But if you stand back and say, this is, this is the larger story of book banning and censorship in schools, then um, you have the opportunity, you're right, I think, to present this in a mind map way. But you also have the opportunity to take large amounts of data and let people, let the machine um, summarize it, find themes mm. in it. Uh, allow the user to query it. So a reporter might come back in the future and not just write a story, but put in all the transcripts of all the interviews and all of the documents and even let the public query this to, with their questions and what they want to know from it. If you still write a story, it might come later in the process. I, th I think it's a perfect way of doing it. It's just this, this kind of the agent model, right? I mean, you could have an right. article... Yes, and then you can say this is a part of a story. Do you want to talk to the story? Yes, exactly. And, or, or do you want to talk to the archives of Shipstead about this about this topic? Uh, do you Absolutely. want to ask what happened twenty years ago and where patterns are? And you have the opportunity to get across this in a way that goes far beyond search. Hmm. Let me ask another question. Um, you you said earlier that if we don't get our act together, this could be the last battle. So for a moment, be dystopian and pessimistic. And mm. if we don't do what we're supposed to do in the news industry, if we don't follow your good leadership, Stead, uh, what happens? Well, I think we are going to be disintermediated. I think people in general are lazy in terms of what level of friction they're willing to go through to get the information, right? And we started off as uh, paper newspapers and trying to catch different kind of stories and synthesizes and tailorize it to the masses. Then we try to do it a bit more individual. It's still on the internet and the way we've done it on electricity on paper. And now it's going to be even easier for people to, to access this. And I, I personally, I'm a big fan of audio interfaces. I think it's going to be extremely powerful. I think uh, mm -hmm. 
we're a bit disappointed, you know, based on Siri and its likes. But if you start to combine the Gen AI tools that we have out there now with audio, it's going to be super powerful. You're going to talk to computers in natural language. You're going to have a mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. about things. And I think we just have to be, you know, throw away this, oh, it's hallucinating. It's not working like this. Blah, blah. It's going to work. But so if we're not going for not as companies, being able to be part of that experience that the users exp- uh, are expecting, lowering the friction in access to information that's relevant for you, then we are going to be in trouble. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out, but I think the, the 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 most important part is that you know a lot of the adver- a lot of the newspapers of the world on the internet are still very very, very advertising based. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. right. Sure. And and we have a quite healthy subscription business, but it's tough even in, in the Nordics where, you know, the reading, the willingness to pay for newspapers quite, is probably record high in the world. Yes. Uh, and, and if you lose eyeballs and they start, you know, accessing this data, this information in other places in a different way, it doesn't take a long time before margin goes from 10 to 12% at best and then goes minus 10. And then I- it's trouble. I like what you, the, the, the picture you're painting is also of, of using AI as a relevance machine for people to make this mass that we created for the masses uh, uh, more more relevant. Um, Jason, I've got another absolutely unrelated question. So uh, <laughs> anything else on, on topic you want to ask? Um, well, I mean, I guess, I guess the, you know, along kind of what you're talking about, kind of setting this dystopian view, uh, you know, of, of way things could possibly go if, if it doesn't happen. What what could you identify as the probably the biggest challenge we face then when it comes to avoiding that dystopian view? I think it is uh, the lack of willingness to invest and take risk. Ah, yeah, risk, big time. I think I think I think you know that the media industry has shown to be a um, slow moving industry in the transition from the <laughs> early two thousands. Sure. Um, it has well, it has a couple of lighthouses around the world that are trying to do things differently, but they are quite conservative. Um, and they are also uh, protective. And in some countries, like in the US, very threatened, right? They, they probably feel this even more than we do in some of the Nordic countries. Um, so I think if they are approaching this in the way, which we've met from some of our peers in the Europe as well, it's like, this is bad. It's going to kill us. Um, we don't want them to take our content. We don't really want to be a part of this in a way. If you like, you stick your hand into this, your head into the sand in a way, um, then it's just that's that's the worst enemy. That's the worst enemy. So let me ask a related question there. So I lied. I probably have two questions. Um, I always do. Uh, I'm working on a new program that I hope to get started, uh, a new degree program in university on on what I call for now internet studies or internet humanities or bringing other disciplines into um, education for tomorrow's leaders of the internet and society on it. And so I wonder, um, looking at Shipstead, besides hiring your te- technologists, besides hiring people who are going to do coding, if we even need coders in the future, one could argue, um, in the general larger skills in a company like Shipstead, in the newsroom, but also in sales and management and 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 marketing and so on, what kinds uh, are there different skills that you think we should be looking training students for, and that you should be looking for in the near future because of AI and the internet? They just need to do 
understand how to use the tools. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important. I mean, the, the statement is not mine. I mean, you're not replaced by AI, but by somebody using AI. Um, and it's um, what we do is just to be very mindful of this. It is not only about journalists or tech people or something. So we, you know, we're training. Uh, we now trained. I think three days ago we had the employee number one thousand out of our six thousand people that have gone through very thorough courses in how to use AI. Wow. Right? If you're a, if you're a developer or you're a journalist or if you're in sales or whatever you are, people go to different kind of tracks. Um, so I think that's really the essence is to really, I, I, my daughter is com- studying computer science up in NTNU. I said, you know, the only thing you need to do is to use whatever AI tool you find. Yeah. Just use it because that's mm-hmm. just, it's like being in the internet when, you know, <laughs> when World Wide Web coming along, it's just yeah. like, it's, it's the same thing happening and you just need to test out everything and learn how to use those tools. So I think that's the most important, Jeff. It's just not, you don't, you don't need to train them, but you need to be very open about, you know, these tools are here to stay. It's like, it's, it's like you, if you're using a manual typewriter and then there comes a computer along, and it says, I don't want to use a computer. Yeah. Yeah. So I note a guitar behind you. Jason is a musician. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious what you see happening with AI in other areas besides journalism, and let's just say in media and entertainment. Um, are you seeing development in uh, the Nordics as well there in interesting ways? Well, there are, I mean, in, in the Nordics, so they're, they're very different kind of societies in many ways. I would think, you know, in Norway, it's, you know, it's a lot about B2B business and industries. Uh, and I think particularly in like heavy industries, it's, there's, they haven't moved a lot. They're working a lot more with predictive, uh, predictive analytics and AI in that way. Um, but on Gen AI, I haven't seen that much in the entertainment space. I guess the musicians are, you know, they're probably going to use it quite a bit. Uh, whether they are going to be threatened, I'm I'm not convinced yet, to be honest, even though, you know, I have shitloads of examples of good songs being made by these different services. And I made a couple of myself, which are quite, quite <laughs> impressive, but you, but you can't ship them and make money on them, can you? No. Mm, no. No, doesn't seem that no. way. It's, it's really interesting and, and very timely because last weekend I was in uh, Anaheim and, uh, you know, down in Southern California for a music marketing convention called NAM, uh, probably one of the biggest ones. And I went there wondering if I was going to see a lot about artificial intelligence just based on the moment we're at and hearing about all the you know the the, the you know, people getting up in arms about copyright around music you know uh, cloning and that that sort of stuff with with artificial intelligence and mm. I didn't see much while I was there but what I did pick up is that it really it was almost like AI was it was a terminology that was used in whispered terms almost like well used AI it was almost like it was a bad word huh. No one okay. wanted to admit if they were using it, they really didn't want to admit it, you know, because they didn't want any, any, you know, sort of um, analysis around what that actually means. So, well, I'm looking forward to South by Southwest this year and looking at the, oh, yeah. trying to see what's catching up there. It's going to be probably Gen AI all over. I think you're right. Absolutely. I think that's probably the better, the better place to go for that, that sort of like combination of technology and music where I went felt very kind of like, uh, felt very much like the the traditional thought of making music. There was a lot of technology, but anyways, didn't see nearly as much around AI as I had hoped. Um, we do have some news items to get to, but I don't want to end the interview until I know that we're actually at the end of it. Jeff, do you have any any kind of final 
final things burning. No, I just think uh, what are, uh, there's other time. I would love to hear more about the training, but we don't have time for that. And, and, and yeah, how that I mean, operates. we could, we yeah. could talk about the training and, uh, well, just, let me just ask the quick question. Um, yeah. for, uh, what's, what's the essence of the, of the, of the training that you're putting people through journalists or not? Well, the, for the, for the tech people, it's really about how do they, of course, use AI and build AI tooling, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's the key thing. Product people is like, what problems can you solve with AI and which ones should you not try to solve with AI? Because sometimes you try to, you know, to, to just solve it with AI just for the heck of it. And, uh, that's not what we want to happen. Um, then we have more a general one that really explains what it is and what tools we have. And now we're making um, a prompting course. Yeah. So we're going to drive. We're going to drive that through all our employees, uh, and then we're going to make it more specific for certain disciplines. We haven't really chosen which ones they are, you know. But most likely, sales should have one. Uh, journalists should have another one, and so on and so on. So more like a generic, you know, how do you use these tools, and then go branch out and sorry for that branch out in different uh in in different i would say disciplines in a way well i i'm just i'm just real quick i'm just taken by how empowered i feel in hearing you talk about your you and your company's approach to this it's a very empowering position as opposed to i think a lot of people come to this from that point of fear from that point of oh no retraction pull, you know, hold things close so that things don't change. And really this entire interview has been an example of what, what you can get if you open up to this in this inevitable reality, which is that AI is here and they are tools to be used. And if you open yourself up to them, you can create some really amazing things. I'm just really inspired by, by that, by your approach. That's good to hear. Good to hear. That's what Thanks, Shipster has been doing, doing for 183 years, empowering people in their daily lives. You know, <laughs> and just endorsing endorsing the new technologies from yes. from the printing press, practically. So exactly. well, that's what we do. Well, I'm going to make this uh, conversation required listening for uh, various of my people in the business. But thank you so much for doing this. I'm grateful. Should we do some news, Jason? Yeah. And uh, Sven did say he'd stick around a little bit because we just kind of have to. a couple of news items. We have probably like maybe 10 more minutes in the in the show before we have to end. But um, so, you know, just a couple of news items that kind of caught our attention this week. And mine, I'm I continue to be uh, fascinated by, you know, things like the video generation, um, kind of the creative, the creativity, you know, morphing and crossing um, that Venn diagram with with artificial intelligence. And Google had an announcement about Lumiere, their AI video uh, generator, which basically does things a little bit different from my understanding from other video generators. If you've ever used a video generation AI, you often will see that frame to frame, certain things aren't constant. Like the, the frames change and they evolve but certain realities about what you're seeing, if you take the first frame and then you go to the last frame, you know, what used to be a, you know, a forehead may have evolved into like a wispy hairdo or something, something along those lines. And Lumiere essentially is doing this differently. Um, it's, uh, what is it called? Motion and location in tandem. So there's space and time. It analyzes where things should be placed, also how they should move. And it does that through a single run-through process. And that allows for this kind of smoother motion output. And um, things stay constant for the most part. So 
you know, it also does in painting. So you can do the silly things like, Hey, change that shirt from a t-shirt to, you know, a button up or whatever the case may be. But there are other competitors out there, Runway, Pika Labs, which I've had some, um, some interaction with and is doing really cool things and, and everything. This isn't a product that you can use right now. It's a research product, but, um, you know, so either we're going to get the ability to use it somewhere down the line or Google's going to do what they often do, which is integrate it into some other part of their Google verse before they but, kill um, it before. Yeah. Before they get bored of it and decide to kill it. That's true. I, I found this interesting, Jason, <laughs> uh, Gary Marcus, who writes a lot about AI put up a post today about um, the mistakes that AI makes because it knows the close relationship of one pixel to the next or one word to the next, but the larger picture playing out has problems with it. He put up a, 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 a AI generated photo of a man hugging a unicorn and the, the unicorn's horn goes right through his head, uh, apparently with no harm and no blood, and 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 it just shows that it doesn't understand that larger context yet, which is just kind of kind of fascinating. Oh Sven, man, you see, uh, <laughs> it's a little freaky. Um, I mean, it's got its own. It, it's almost make you know. I don't know what the point would be, but it, it looks like it's making some sort of a point in and of itself. It's kind of beautiful to look at, even though it's totally wrong. <laughs> right. So if, if Google can oh, find wow. coherence within a video, that's fascinating. Sven, do you see much use yeah. for video at Shipstead? Not at this yeah. point of time. Yeah. No, not at this point of time. No. So another story that I found interesting. I'm eager to hear Sven's view on this one. Is uh, you probably all saw that that uh, uh, the videos were put up, unfortunately, of Taylor Swift, uh, who's the subject of every kind of bad social thing, uh, in addition yeah. to the adoration. And um, uh, on on Twitter, they didn't know what to do, so they just stopped all searches for Taylor Swift, which is kind of a blunt way to deal with uh, moderation. And um, uh, Microsoft is making changes to its tool so that it can't be used to do this. And and I've been arguing for some time that I think that people who believe that we can build guardrails on foundation models to prevent it from doing bad things, that's as, as foolish as saying that you can, Gutenberg could have made the press so that it couldn't print certain things. It's up to the humans who use it who can get around any rule and will use it however they choose and will find bad ways to use it, especially if we put up guardrails saying, Oh, we gotcha. You can't do anything bad here and people are going to do it. Kevin Roos convinced ChatGPT to fall in love with him uh, and to give it dark visions of life. Uh, I think we're going to see a difficult moment where people are going to realize that this is a general use tool like a printing press, like a camera, and it can it can capture and create bad things and good things. And no, we can't make the company anticipate every possible bad use someone could imagine and build protection against it. Sven, what do you think, yeah, I think about, yeah. about guardrails? I, I think I think you're perfectly right. I think that uh, you will have to just to see this as any other tool. I think, though, that you know the, the large services, the ones that are relating to, to hundreds of millions of consumers, most likely have to implement guardrails um, mm -hmm. because it's just they don't just want this content to be created. But I think that to have that as a regulation is super, super difficult. It's, it's not realistic at all. Um, I mean, to just take one example that we've done, you know, we were we were just flooded with all kinds of fake photos, for, particularly from Ukraine. Um, so we just gathered, collaborated between the different media companies, and we made a, a, a group of people that are fact checking all these images and videos yep. 
from the different media companies rather than doing it ourselves, just because it's just so damn difficult. And you can't expect Adobe or any of these to make systems that said, okay, we're going to put any watermark on everything that's generated from our tools, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't believe it. It's just going to be too much open source out there. Yeah, I think so. And well, that's one of the arguments people make against open source is, oh my God, they can get around the guardrails then. But uh, that that just makes the big old companies, you wouldn't be able to use um, Mistral if open source were out, outlawed in Europe as some regulators were discussing. So I think, yeah, I think that's a fool's errand. Oh. Jason, you have one more than I want. I know that Sven had a story too he mentioned before, so I want to get to that as well. Go ahead. Yeah, with well, this one was just... Uh, the, this one essentially is open AI and common sense media, which as a parent of, of two you know, young daughters, I've used common sense media over the years so many times to you know, check up on like a movie and see, you know, are there moments in this movie that, are, that might be inappropriate to show my kids? And it was just a really nice tool and still is. Um, but open AI and common sense media have entered into a partnership um, aiding teens in avoiding um, you know, misuse and harm in the AI tools. This is kind of part of something Common Sense Media had already been doing. They've already been reviewing AI assistance for in recent months. But this part of this agreement apparently has um, has something to do with OpenAI's GPTs and potentially Common Sense Media creating family friendly GPTs, which I think is interesting. Had to see it coming. Have no idea what that even means or you know what that what that uh, turns into. But the reason that I wanted to put this in there in here is because I was in my ten year old daughter's classroom yesterday helping the teacher do some work. And um, while I was there, the art teacher was up at the head of the class and they were kind of going over their artwork and everything. And in a 10-year-old's classroom, one kid shot his hand up and he said, can I use AI for this problem, for, for this assignment? <laughs> I mean, at 10 years old, they're, th- they're realizing and they're connecting the dots. What was and the teacher's like, answer? Uh, no, Well, I mean, her answer was no, you, you can't. But I don't... You know, and I'm I'm sure that she would be able to detect, you know, the work of a 10-year-old versus the work of an AI. But uh, just really interesting, this moment that we're in, especially around education. I know that's a topic that I would love to get on a future episode. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, Sven, you mentioned something that happened that I didn't even know about before we got on on, on the air, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. There was a colleague of mine, one of our brainy guys on AI, Ian Venman, that just made the note to me that, you know, that chat GPT just had this new function where you can pull any gpt into a conversation just using the at name of the gpt right and uh, he had a very interesting <laughs> reflection so how long is it before we make a mini me out of yourself with all the content that you produce and that can be pulled into any dialogue or you can have even multiple individuals that are actually gpts that talk to each other so where is and this going to end it may do a good job um, I, yeah. I took my, I, I have a book coming out in the fall about the internet. Uh, it takes them forever. Uh, the copy edit's done, uh, called the web we weave, why we must reclaim the internet from moguls, misanthropes, and moral panic. And so I took the, uh, the, the title's almost as long as the book. I took the entire manuscript. I put it into Google's notebook LM and asked to summarize it. And in seconds it did, and it did a good job, which might mean that I wrote a mm. simplistic book, but it was it was pretty awe-inspiring. And now I've asked LLMs, you know, the obvious egotistical questions, things about me, and they get things wrong. We know that. But in summarizing content, they're pretty amazing. And being able yeah. to grab onto the essence of a speaker and mimic them, yeah, that could be yeah. 
fun. Mini Jeff, mini Jeff, the Jeff GPT. <laughs> yes. More people want to yeah. shut me up than have me speak more. <laughs> Jeff, yeah, Jeff GPT with a mute button. <laughs> that's, the pre- that's the premium version. You get the mute yes, button. you got to pay extra for that. One. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, this is this is so great. Oh, and you you had the last one. Did you want to? Did you want to mention? Oh, I was watching that. Just I saw the first really useful GPT uh, application. I haven't used it, uh, but uh, it was a great idea. A GPT that summarizes your screenshots on, on my, my, the Mac I use for the, for these shows, when I take screenshots, it's just, it's just a, a hundreds of them and I have no oh, idea yeah. what they are. I can't find them. I can't get thumbnails. This is just a, the simplest little thing that's useful. So I just wanted to, yeah, we don't, we don't want those as well. We've been, we just added, you know, all the privacy documents we have that people have to relate <laughs> to, you know, it's super complex and it's just called privacy GPT and anyone in the company can just ask it or we put the AI, AI act into a GPT and you can just ask the AI act about stuff. So wow. all these kind of things that you never access, right? Just put them into a GPT and open it for people. That's, you know, that that's making me think about terms of service and stuff. And this, this thing that, you know, everybody is presented with a million different directions on all the things they use. And most people rarely, if ever, read a single lick of it, um, partially because it's so darn long and exhausting and everything. And, you know, you got to kind of comprehend all that stuff. So it's not always that easy. Uh, custom GPT might actually be a, a service that a particular organization or site could offer to give you as a user a direct ability to check in on certain things yeah. there. That could be incredibly cool. terms, ter- terms and conditions, GPT, am I being screwed? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> the GPT that looks out for you. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> yes. Well, Sven, it, this has been uh, such a an honor and a privilege to have you on for the last hour, and also at, as late as it is where you are right now. I think it's now eleven p.m. Um, so I apologize for that, but we really no appreciate problem. you uh, joining us for the last hour to talk about. Uh, I, I think this was a really you know inspiring conversation. Yeah. This shows what can happen if we don't turn toward the kind of fear and uncertainty and the doubt, the, the FUD that's out there around this stuff, and instead look at it as an opportunity to you know maybe create something better for everyone, that's, uh, that's something to be totally respected. And I appreciate that you guys are doing that, that awesome work. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then it's shipstead.com. Uh, anything else you want to point people to? This is kind of your opportunity to direct them anywhere you want them to go. <laughs> yeah, you can just write me, sven.taulo at uh, shipstead.com. Simple right. as that. Right on. Well, Sven, it's been an honor. Thank yes, you so thank much. Thank you so for, much, Sven. Yeah, for joining us. And Jeff, uh, what do you want to plug? Oh, nothing right now. Just the usual Gutenberg parenthesis, uh, gutenbergparenthesis.com. There are discount codes which weren't working but are working again for my books, uh, the Gutenberg parenthesis and magazine. Excellent. Gutenbergparenthesis.com. As for me, Jason Howell, AIinside.show for this show, of course, but um, yellowgoldstudios.com will take you to the, at least the YouTube channel right now that we have for this 
particular show and other things that I'm working on. Ultimately, I'm going to have a website up, but I'm not quite there. I'm trying to do all the things myself right now. And let me tell you, it is not easy, uh, but I'm doing my best. This show, AI Inside, normally publishes every Wednesday, and it will again uh, this week, but we recorded it a little early, so sorry to throw you off. Uh, sometimes we have to do that. We have to time shift. Um, normally, we record every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, like I said, if you go to YouTube or Twitch, you can search for Yellow Gold Studios, and you will find this show as one of the shows on the network. Subscribe by going to AIinside.show. You can support us directly by going to our Patreon at patreon.com slash show. And thank you so much to those who are patrons of this show, supporting us directly. We've heard from so many of you, and it's just really cool to know that we have you uh, in our corner, got our back, and we really appreciate it. Um, look for us on all the major socials. Just search, search our names or AI Inside Show. Uh, we'll get you to us as well. And then if you have any feedback, you want to let us know your thoughts about any of these stories you've got ideas for a future episode, uh, interview possibility, any of that stuff, contact at AIinside.show. Thank you so much for watching and listening, everybody. We will see you next week on another episode of AI Inside. Bye, everybody. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.